0: The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Joshua, how's it going? Hey Harry, nice to see you. It's been a little while. Nice to see you as well, man. Um, we were just chatting a minute before uh, we got started. Uh, congratulations on the new the newborn. That's really exciting. Uh, is it a girl or a boy? Thank you. It's a little girl. And what's her name?
1: Her name is Charlotte. <laughs>
0: Are you, uh, how are you doing? Have you taken different. some time off? Or are you, um, you know, working already? Bit of both.
1: So I typically take all of June off every year. Um, my wife went to school in England. So we usually spend June in the UK. Um, so we kind of already had it schedule. And when we kind of were pregnant, we just decided to stay here for June. So I took um, actually the first all of June and then two weeks in May. She was due on May 20th and I think she was just comfy. So she didn't actually... Greet us until June 1st.
0: Very nice. Very nice. That's awesome. Um, well, for those who don't know you and what you do, why don't you just briefly say at a high level what you're doing today and then kind of get into your story and how you got into what you're doing?
1: Sure. Um, I'm an image consultant and personal stylist. So, in general, it's my job to help people feel well dressed. It's and, and we use the word feel because it's different for everyone. It's a moving target, right? Um, there's no one way to dress. Uh, and even for an individual, based on your day and what you do, you address differently. So you can think of what I do as uh, a merging of, of marketing and wardrobe. You walk in somewhere, you want to use your clothing as a tool for your location, and I help. Awesome. Awesome. So and then on the low end, I'm a glorified <laughs> people know what they want and they just have this kind of schlep
0: stuff around. Go get things, make, get, make adjustments, alterations. What's the, what's the f- I, what funniest, you know, if you mind, sh- if you don't mind sharing, what's the funniest of R- gopher requests that you've, you've done for somebody?
1: <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, I'm not sure it's funny to them. But uh, we had... Un- unconventional. Uh, Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I, I think that people that use our service tend to be busy, right? They're they're successful in something and they tend to understand that their success lies here and not here. So they stay in their lane. So they use us um, for all sorts of uh, speed-oriented requests. Like uh, a gentleman had purchased a suit... Um, and he left it in. We're here in Atlanta today. Well, he left it in Atlanta by mistake, and he was in LA, and uh, he needed it for like a date, like the very next day. So we had to go to his house at like five in the morning, and like same date, the suit to him, which was like three times the cost of the suit. Um, so like that's like that's not unusual for us. Um, you know, most of the requests that we get, I think are funny to people who, whose needs are maybe fewer. Sure. Right. Um, I think the more you have, the more is on your plate. Um, we get some legitimate needs, like, you know, some people, they can't walk very well because they need insoles. So we'll fly in someone from Italy that can mirror your custom orthotic to the footbed of their shoes. So that their dress shoes are as sort and as comfortable as your orthotic would be i think it's funny people are like you would spend how much for shoes but for that person it's a lightsaber so
0: maybe funny maybe not i don't know yeah i think funny is the wrong word but like just interesting or or unconventional or atypical for yeah. the average person um I, th- what came to mind when i asked that question was i we had some a family friend who was a a big like private banker in new york and mm-hmm. he had a story of um you know, some of his clients, they were hiring him actually, to like to take care of his wealth and and help grow it. But he would sometimes, I think, or maybe it was just one time it happened, but he walked one of his clients' dogs. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, which would be un, un, like not in his job description, but I think it was just something that he wanted to do, to it, and, and the client needed it. And you know, nothing was below his kind of you know uh, making the client have a good experience. If that makes sense.
1: Definitely. I, I, I've, I've delivered cigarettes to a clan at like one of them. Because it's just, you know, what they wanted and their working hours from midnight to six. So here I am at their house at one in the morning. <laughs> uh, well, tell me more about yourself. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Atlanta. Oh, one of the few natives here. Went away to school.
2: Um, Where'd you go to school? Stayed abroad
1: for a little while. I went to Bryan College, which is a little private school in Tennessee. And then I transferred for a little while to UVA for their semester at sea program. So I go to school on a boat around the world for a little while, which is a lot of fun. Spent a summer in the Mediterranean, it was great. Were you, Um,
0: before you went to college, were you already into fashion and and image and all that?
1: So I really enjoyed it. Um, I grew up. I'm not wealthy at at, at any level. Like, we didn't have heating and air conditioning in my house. We had running water, but, like, there was little by way of amenities in my home. So I think I looked at fashion as, like, an aspirational pursuit Uh and probably as a corollary for achievement, right? It wasn't necessarily that I liked fashion in its own right. I liked the idea of having been successful and being able to Not just afford fashion, but the need to go somewhere where fashion was a necessity in life.
0: What did your folks do? Uh,
1: My dad's a teacher. And he also owns still um, a vending company. So like um, bottles, snacks, and drinks. Um, And during the day, my mother would help with the company. And then my dad, my whole life basically had two jobs. He went from work to work. So he would go from teaching to vending. Um, super smart guy just really really loved teaching that was his passion in life. probably still is what did he teach like 25 years Uh, he teaches so his degrees are in organic chemistry professional biology business and education Um, so he teaches i think chemistry and physics high school chemistry high school physics
0: interesting so where did you get exposed to fashion and kind of seeing it as something that was aspirational at that age? Was it something that you discover on your own or through a friend or a mentor?
1: You know, I've wondered about that a lot because, you know, when you grow up blue collar, there are some vocations that are not typically seen as worthwhile, right? Um, There's a, so my wife is a teacher as well. And um, when they try to understand socioeconomic classes to better serve kids for to, um, to scaffold education and curricula. Uh, they teach teachers um, using the analogy of food. Um, to someone who is in a lower economic class, the question typically asks is, did you get enough food? To a middle-class individual, the question typically is, was it good food? And then the upper-class individual typically cares about the experience of the dining environment, plating, things like that. Uh, So using that analogy, like my parents should have been asking me, did I get enough food? Um, And instead they sort of encouraged this uh, natural affinity I had towards uh, shopping and reading magazines, um, a little bit of travel when I had the chance. Um, But I think that my interest probably came again from that margin of realizing that like I was here and there was more in the world. I think I just latched on to fashion as being one of the possibilities to help me get where I wanted to go. Remember, you know, in, in high school, I would wear a an unusual outfit and get positive attention for it. And that probably reinforced that I really want to do this sort of thing. Um, my first job was, um, so the United States Postal Service, USPS, has a loss and recovery center. And all of their lost packages come to the to Atlanta. There's a big warehouse, and they used to auction off pallets. So it was an uh, eight by eight by eight, baseline or four by four um, cubes, cellophane top by category. And my first boss, he went, he would buy stuff, and he would come back to the warehouse and he would dump it on the floor. My first job was the listing. I was like 16 years old, uh, and I knew nothing about like anything. I didn't know like. A turbocharger from a drill press for like a hand iron. Was just, uh, And we had to go through this palette of stuff to figure out what was worth money and, and listen on eBay. And I, and I learned pretty quickly that everything has value, that for most things, physical materials, value is attributed based on uh, use or value to the end user. So I did well at this company, I uploaded pretty quickly. Became the head buyer for the lost freight division. So I would walk in and it kind of makes sense. If you're a contractor and you're building a building, and you were 100 AC units and you know 10 of them get damaged on the trucks, you would refuse the shipment for insurance purposes. Those 10 AC units go to auction for the shipping company to recoup their costs. So we're looking at those units, thinking, what can we sell them for? And because contractors don't come to auction, we can sell them to those people who want to scratch and dent unit. So I learned pretty quickly that there's margin in most things in life and that I can find the value and and make some money because value isn't true. Uh, So then I went to college um, and promptly went broke, most college kids do. Um, I remember very, very clearly I had $20 to my name and that was going to last me for food and gas for the semester. It's not a lot.
0: Did you uh, Um, take out loans or did you have a scholarship or how did you get to school?
1: So, the actual um, tuition, I had mostly gotten scholarships and I got loans for the rest. Um, This was just, you know, the ability to eat. Um, My tuition did come with dining for most days, which was helpful, but that was so no gas. I need to get back and forth. From Tennessee back to Atlanta, and I was in Atlanta visiting, and I was in a Macy's department store. i Remember, there was a polo shirt by a brand called Hugo Boss, and it was marked down from eighty-five dollars to fourteen dollars. I remember really wanting this polo shirt. It was fourteen dollars, and I had twenty, like to my name total. My net worth was twenty dollars, and thinking like, I love that shirt, but I can't spend like most of my net worth on a polo shirt, right? Um. But I noticed that there was two things. One, there was a rack of There was like 30 shirts on the rack. And then there was a sign that said, you know, 10% extra off with credit card. So as an American, I opened a Macy's charge card account that day. And I maxed it out. I bought all 30 shirts. Because I remembered that things have value. I can find the margin. So I went back to my dorm room that weekend. And I listed uh, 29 shirts for sale. I ended up netting $400 from that and I kept a free shirt. I thought that was pretty cool because I had turned my money, my $20 was safe, right? I had used Macy's $400 to make $400 and kept a free shirt. Um, And that was profound for me because it gave me a way out, right? So I started buying and selling and uh, there was a sort of brief period in in retail where uh, RTVs didn't happen. So an RTV means return to vendor. And typically when big box stores buy things from places like Polo Ralph Lauren, they will pay a certain price. And that price means that at the end of the season, whatever doesn't sell, they can send the items back to the vendor and either they pay less for the total bill or they get a refund what they sent back. Right. So it it mitigates the risk potential for the big Stores, um, it's good for vendors too to get their stuff into more stores. Um, but and vendors are always like, trying new things. Like
0: there's like a outlet stores. Is it the return to vendor clothes that go into the outlet stores, or
1: uh, can be if it's a, it's a if it's an outlet store for a big box like a Nordstrom Rack? Typically, it's things that are not that are not RTV eligible. If it's a outlet store for like Polo Ralph Lauren, it would be a combination of things that were RTVs from big boxes as well as unsold merchandise from their own stores. And also, stores are increasingly producing lower quality merchandise just for outlet. So that that is probably more prominent now than anything else, like RTVs. But back in the day, that's what that was Got it. Um, So like RTVs weren't a thing. So uh, stores were incentivized to just drop prices like crazy stuff. So it was kind of a sweet spot in the you know retail world Um, where I would walk in and there would be like a Emporio Armani jackets for one penny each, like a cent. Because the way the when a sales system worked, it would automatically reduce price, reduce, reduce price until it, you know, hit a penny. And typically that meant RTV, but they couldn't RTV things. So we were buying, you know, $800 jackets for literally one penny each off the Bloomingdale's floor. It was a great time. So how long did that last? This, not too long. Uh, the geniuses at federated departments realized that that was not a smart thing to do.
0: Like less uh, than a year or a couple years or
1: the really low prices lasted less than a year. That was a, a wonderful blip that we found. Um, the decline in RTVs lasted probably a couple of years. Uh, I have not seen those great deals in the past like 10 years just because it's not a smart business move. Typically, they take on that much risk and then clearance things down that that low. I mean, the malls tell a story, right? Like the anchor stores in most malls have gone away. So clearly, it was not a smart thing to do. Um but it was, I had this huge inventory in my, uh, my dorm room. and My roommate was such a kind gentleman. We had warehouse space in our closets, my closet, his closet. Our table, table was a shipping table. We had stuff stacked like that. And it became conspicuous. Like I'm carrying in like 30 bags of Nina Marcus from my car to my dorm room. And they're like, what are you doing with Nina Marcus' bags? So I told my friends what I was doing and they thought it was really cool. And they either wanted to model for the eBay photos or more commonly as we got a little older, junior and senior year, they wanted to wear nice clothes. Mm-hmm. They would get dates or, or interviews and they'd come in and say, hey, what should I wear? So we would, I'd let them borrow like a polo shirt. And this is super unethical. Like don't do this. But I would let them borrow a polo shirt with a the, the tag in, you know, on the back. Don't get a stain on it. I'll owe me $1,000 that Tom Ford polo shirt. But wear it tonight. Have fun. Enjoy. It. And then tomorrow we'll sell it as new. Don't do that anymore, but I did used to. Um, and they would really enjoy that. And uh, I had a watershed moment for myself uh, in 2008 when the market crashed. Uh, my best friend's dad is, he sold. And everyone has their passion in life and their specialty. And his was, his was, was paint. He'd walk into a room and be like, this isn't white. This is Arctic 254 from three years ago. Like he knew and loved what he sold. He loved helping people people person his name is hr which stands for hot rod um he's like five foot four he's the life of every party he's just a fantastic human um and in 08 when the market crashed and new construction stopped painters also stopped painting new construction so he had owned this benjamin Moore paint store for 20 years and he lost everything business is life savings and hr who's a fireball of a man suddenly had a very visible like Slow. He just was depressed. And his wife called and said, HR hasn't had an interview in 20 years. Could you please dress him for an interview to help him get a job? I said, of course, I'm... HR was a huge influence in my life. So uh, he came over and I put him in an outfit and he came out of the fitting room.
0: Were you still and... in college at this time?
1: I was still in college. I think this was my senior year. Um, So did
0: he come to your dorm or did you, you, you had another place at that point or.
1: I had brought some things home from school for him to try.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: And. It was the very first outfit because I brought several things and he went to the fitting room and, and Harry, he like stood up again. He was HR again. And that was. Amazing isn't a strong enough word because the man who had kind of lost everything Saw value in himself again for something as simple and honestly as meaningless as clothes. I don't have any idea about what I do. I don't think it's that special, but I do know that when people see themselves and feel good about themselves, they act and stand different. They see their value. So that, that pulls in, you know, at, at auction, I learned that stuff has value because if there's a pallet of cups, I'll cup here. And we're both bidding on it, and I'm a reseller and you're an end user. The value for the cup for you is higher than for me. It's because we're attributing value to the cup. But people have intrinsic value, right? I'm, I'm a Christian, so I believe that God made people. And when he did that, he you know, breathes life into you, and that gives you value. It's why things are immoral, like slavery. You can't do that because people have intrinsic value. You cannot barter people's livelihoods or lives. So I think the best that most of us can do is help people see their value. I think that education is probably the most common avenue for this. You learn your place in society as uh, as a member of the community uh, and, and in of history that you have a value. Um, but other aspects to this too, artists most notably, right? They give you insight into the human experience in a variety of ways, and my little slice of that happens to be fashion. And what keeps me going is the fact that people, when I leave, look in the mirror and they see themselves differently than when I when I arrived, and it's usually for the better. Uh, and I, I love that I get to have that influence on people's lives.
0: A hundred percent. That's so awesome. So I, I want to dig into some of what you've been sharing a little bit more. Um... If it's all right, let's go back for a second to that first college, um, you know, $400 of profit. So dig into that more with me. Like, so were you listing them on eBay? Um, what What did you do to increase the perceived value so that all of that was sold at a profit for you? Can you explain that and walk through that a little bit more? Yes, I think
1: that the, the single answer that is arbitrage. I had access to it in one market that Evitual did not have access to. The whole world could have, or knew to type in Macy's.com and had access to that sale. That would have been great. But I was able to buy in one market and sell in another. So arbitrage is the answer to that question.
0: Yeah. So obviously you had much better price than people were aware of. But was there anything that you had to do in terms of describing the clothes, photographing the clothes? Was there anything about how you packaged or positioned the clothes that you feel like that influenced the sale or was essential to making the sale.
1: Uh, yes. And that was actually a a bit of a learning curve, uh, in clothing, true representation of what you're selling is really important. So it's what got me into photography, which is still kind of a hobby of mine, Um, learning how to white balance, uh, learning how to present her perspective, even folding things really nicely, right? Like the, the visual presentation, because once you list yours for sale, like, this is not, Atlanta does not own the only Macy's in there, right? Inconceivably, some other kid in some other state found the same deal and also listed it online. So, yes, arbitrage helps me get there, but then I have to compete against the other seller. So, a better picture, um, better listing, typically better return terms, faster shipping times, free shipping costs, all those things kind of play in, but that is. It's a learning curve for sure. No you know those things going in. So I think on day one, I took a black bedspread because it was a light blue polo. Um think yeah, folded it as nicely as I possibly could and used what I assume was either an early iPhone or like some sort of like Palm Pilot device to take a picture um, back in the day. But that that's stretching. That was, that was a long time ago.
0: Yeah. And, um, um, was there any sort of formula of how you would price it? Was it a function of, you know, 30% off retail or 40% or how did you think about that?
1: I can't speak. To, I can't honestly say that I know how I did it back then. I know how I do it today. Um, today, if I were to sell something, I usually start at half off because you have to present enough value to the end user to sway them from the experience of buying something new. Um, so the saving cost typically makes up for the loss of experience. Um, but then I'll also utilize, there's a sold feature on eBay, so you can go on and type what you want to sell in this search bar. And then on the filter set, you can see what things have sold for in the past. And I'll try and aim for somewhere around there, depending upon how rare the item is. I think if it's a commodity that is not easy to get, of course, you increase the price. Um, but if it's easy to get and you want to move it or you need the cash for, it, then you dump the price and move on. You can play the volume game or the high expectations game typically.
0: Totally makes sense. Um, so how much in gross volume or revenue do you feel like you had done in, in college doing this sort of arbitrage? Do you have a sense of a ballpark? With like
1: low six figures, like it wasn't a ton. Um, Looking back at the time, like it made a world of difference. Um, I started making relationships with whoever I could because I wanted them to think of me first when things went on sale. So I learned that, you know, they're on commission. Because I mean, early on, I didn't have a sense of how commission worked. So I learned that sales associates are on commission and that managers have sales goals. So I would go to stores and try and befriend as many salespeople as I could and make sure that I bought from the same person every time. So they knew they had a guaranteed sale if they called me when things went on sale. And they knew that I wasn't going to return it. So that helped. And then I tried to, you know, at some point, you buy enough stuff, the manager begins to recognize me and sort of all the time buying stuff. So I would introduce myself, explain what I do. They would be thrilled.
0: Um, at so they didn't feel moving. threatened or that they liked you and what you were doing?
1: Correct. That's really a lesson I learned really early on that I have moved forward to to today is you take care of your vendors before your clients typically. That sounds horrible, but like clients and customers come and go. They're a parade audience, but there's only a few sources that I have for quality goods. So you really don't want to anger one of your vendors for any reason. And they, as long as our interests are aligned it's beneficial. Like I had this uh, rather unique opportunity. So I, I started buying and selling anything I could find. Um, this was, I think, shortly after college. I was at an AT&T store and they carried little, these are called jam boxes. They were speakers. And they sold for like $200 a piece at retail cost. And I remember that there was like a buy one and get one sale for a little while. So I asked her how many I could buy. And she, she told me, and I explained that I was going to sell on eBay. She's like, well, I need to sell units. And you want to make money. So what if I sell you all the heat my hands on? I said, that's great. So she did some digging. She got every speaker from the state of Georgia to her store and sold me all of them at half all. because so that was the max. discount she could get. So it gave her more units and it gave me volume. Then I found a buyer who would, was willing to take a whole pallet load of speakers. So,
0: what was the question? I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was just asking about. Um, um, I was asking about how much total volume you had done. You know, in those early years of sales.
1: Yeah, so low six figures. I mean, a couple hundred, really.
0: And it sounds like that was able to pay for all your. The profit from that was able to help cover a lot of your expenses and things in college.
1: It did. Yeah. So like the, you know, the over and beyonds that covered like international travel, um, buying more products, being able to not eat dormitory food for every meal, the important
0: things. That Were you having to, like, did you start a, a business at that point? Did you have credit that you needed to manage? How did, how did that happen?
1: I did have credit you to manage. So I didn't have capital. One gave me capital. Macy's gave me capital. And then I realized that every store had their own credit or charge card. So I ended up opening a charge card at pretty much every store that existed. Bloomingdale's, Marcus, TJ Maxx, Macy's, Dillard's. I'm sure I had others. And then once your entry got large, I realized that I could take more risks on items. Uh, I say I don't didn't do returns. There were, on occasion, I would find something that I thought was a really, really interesting piece that I could sell for more than half of retail. So I would buy it and then, you know, you start the clock and say, okay, Macy's has a 30-day return. policy, see, so I can buy it on credit. As long as the cycle doesn't close and I can manage the return timeframe for the actual item, I can risk more money. Once I had cash flow from little things on bigger pieces and on occasion, you get a, a larger pop. So that you know it would sell. If it didn't sell, we just return it back to the store. It's no harm.
0: Yeah, let's 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 explain that a little bit more to people who don't understand. it. It's it sounds like what you're saying is that let's say they had a 30 day return policy. You could buy it on credit, try to sell it in the first three weeks. If it doesn't move, you would return it and basically you would have no risk in that period. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, the two. The two time frames the manage are the return time frame for the store, which could be 30 days, and then the cycle close date for the credit card to not accrue interest. And then if it was a really good item, you want to take a a further risk, I would just basically take the cost of interest on that item and add it to my base cost, and the profit was anything over the purchase price plus, plus accrued interest. So don't advocate getting credit card debt. You can use the debt to make money if yours.
0: Are... Did you have, at those, in those early years, did you know, it'll, did you have any sort of systems for organizing what you had in inventory and managing all that, or was it?
1: That was terrible. I was so unorganized. Um, I am now a, an Excel nerd. I love Excel. Uh, but I think that was an acquired love, and it <laughs> took some fumbles for me to realize how important being organized was with finances. Because it's easy to forget, you know, you have five items that are $2,000 each. And, oh, whoops, return date was yesterday. That cycle date closed today. So now you're on the hook for all that money. You better sell it. Or you're chasing a loss on it for less money. So, yes, a few gaffes definitely teaches you the importance of being organized.
0: Now, you know, um, I feel like the fashion world's really wide. There's always new brands popping up. There are. Brands, though, that have been around for a long time that are well known. Um, but it's not like you can go. I don't know. Did you take any classes on any of this stuff in college?
1: My degree is in communications. Um, and I did take some nonverbal communication classes because I believe that clothing is another tool for communication. You can present yourself in ways that are inviting or ostracizing or friendly or persuasive. But there aren't, there are some color studies. You know, some colors appear friendlier, some combined colors with high contrast tends to appear more formal, low contrast tends to appear more approachable. Um, there's not a lot of way, a lot by way of academic research into brand correlation for communication purposes. Yeah, I was just so a lot I was of curious like,
0: was there, did, are there any books that you can read on, on, some of this theory or the brands or is it just by being so present and getting into those sales reps that you just learned experientially by like having all those relationships and conversations in those years on
1: that side yeah, it's all experientially there there is no book um there are some books coming out now that are sociological in nature that help equate brands and brand purchases to culture and status Um, but as far as knowing what to buy and where to find arbitrage, it really is just about, you know, if you have a passion in anything, you probably know a lot about that topic, right? If you love golf, you probably know a lot about balls and clubs and shoes and carry bags or whatever they use. Um, and you know what good brands are. You know when you see a sale. So maybe utilize that knowledge to your benefit in a way that you would not typically think to do. So buying it for yourself, it's buying it for the wider market. And I think if you want to get a buying in feeling.
0: If I were... In your shoes back in those years, like I think that probably would give me signal be, you know, if there's like a Tom Ford polo and it was way more expensive, I'd be that price would make me curious about why that is. And I want to learn more about that brand. Do you feel like there were moments like that where you're like, how is this so much when this other one that looks very similar on the surface is um, a lot less? Did you have any of those moments?
1: Yeah. So when you get into that, there there are books for that. Um, And I was a voracious reader.
0: I guess I still read a lot,
1: but in the early days, I just knew I had an idea about how much I didn't know, and I felt very self-conscious about being the dumbest person in the room, and I was trying to help people, right with fashion. It's a pretty intimate thing if I'm digging in your underwear drawer, you're trusting me with your clothing, and I don't know what I'm doing, right? So I got and they're aren't always targeted at fashion necessarily, but like there are lots of books on fibers, uh, fiber composition. There's always, I found a great knitting book that talked me through the origin of every fiber, the relevant metrics of that fiber and how it should be used. Well, that gave me a leg up knowing that, well, a polo shirt should be made for something that has no crimp in it so it can stretch with the body. Uh, whereas a trouser that needs to drape might have need for a longer staple length. So it gave me kind of the, the words to use, the vocabulary, and then metrics to apply in reverse to know what to buy to be a smarter shop. Absolutely. Um, so yes, lots of butcher.
0: And so, um, did you ever go into any sort of, um, like I, I hope couture high fashion shops, you know, where they, you have to schedule an appointment and do all that. Was it, was that at all part of your early years? Um, learning about that sort of experience?
1: Yeah, I, I was just generally interested. I like being a student. So I would go into these shops. My, my wife is a very patient person. I would take her with me sometimes. Uh, okay. I still do this when I find something that I don't know. I really want, it, it fascinates me. I I now realize the, the more, you know, the more, you know, that you don't know. Right. Um, so a lot of our vacations are still this, um, uh, if we're going to book a trip. So we go to the UK a bunch and every country's sort of good at something. Uh, or maybe they excel at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for menswear in the UK, uh suits and shoes by far. Uh, so there's a little city called Northampton uh, that has excelled at making shoes, specifically bench-made shoes, for a long time.
0: What are and bench-made shoes?
1: Uh, they're, they're handmade shoes. Back in the day, I think the the term came from, you know, a guy would sit at a bench and literally make the shoes. Um, now you have more mass factory-made shoes, but... Benchmade shoes tends to imply that the shoe is handmade by an individual. Um, those words get co-opted for marketing purposes, so trust that in Like hand-cut
0: french fries today or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, or the word bespoke. Yeah. Um, so we'd go to North in, Northampton, and I would schedule an appointment, and I would want to walk through the factory, and then for hours I would talk to every person in the factory Understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, why they enjoy doing it, and I would meet people. You know, to, there's this uh, process when you make shoes: you have to join two pieces of leather, and if you if you just sew them together, the seam is thick because leather's thick. So you have to thin the material, and it's called skiving. And a skiving machine basically it's loud, so you wear headphones, um, and it just kind of trims the it thins the leather. And so she was skiving pieces and waved her headphones off and turned the machine off. And she introduced myself. and She'd been leather for like 27 years. And she loved her job. She loved the fact that the end product was so renowned. Uh, she was good at it. She was so fast. So, yes, I really got into the hiring because it's a great way to learn about all the different skill sets uh, and things that contribute to a well-made garment. Uh, and then trying to find Maybe whispers of those and ready to wear for clients um, helps you differentiate what brands are worth the time and effort and resources that you may spend on them versus brands that sell purely based on name
0: and writing. So I love it. I think even if people are out there into fashion, they're curious about stuff. Not everyone would be so curious as to literally go to, you know, Northampton shoe factory wave to the Skyver get her to take her headphones off so where do you feel like that comfort of kind of putting yourself out there and um really going deep on this topic where do you feel like that comes from is that just something that's been there with you since you were a kid or was there a moment where you just kind of became more proactive and just comfortable putting yourself out there
1: I don't know, I've always been comfortable asking questions. Maybe it's an only child thing. Um, I've always called adults by their first name even when I was a small child. I think that was weird back then. Um, but I walk in, hi Steve, I'm Joshua. It's kind of a dork. <laughs> uh,
2: I guess I was taught probably by my
1: dad that you just, it, it's okay to ask and you have to ask. I have a really early memory. We were in vacation, in like Panama City Beach, I think, and we wanted a pizza. I think I was like six years old. So it's an early memory. And uh, he had me do it. I had to figure out how to use a phone book, which for your viewers that don't know, that's a paper book that opens and it has phone numbers inside <laughs> correlated to the businesses that own those numbers alphabetically listed. So I had to figure out go to P for pizza and then find the business and then call and then do the transaction over the phone. And I think it, early experiences like that give you a lot of confidence that you can interact in the world uh, as a member of society. Um, when we were looking at buying a new house, when I was in like middle school, my dad again had me do all the correspondence with their realtor. And, and to the point when, the real agent walked up and shook my dad's hand. He said, "Oh, you must be Joshua." I like, said, "No, that's that's my son." <laughs> like, I thought you were an English teacher, which I took as a compliment because I was a middle schooler that he thought I was an adult and an English teacher. Um, mm-hmm. so being forced to interact over and over and over again, repetition is is I guess the key there to not being. I mean, it doesn't occur to me to be nervous. Hmm.
0: That's so cool. I don't. I, th- I, I don't, don't think, think he. I think that's very unique. I don't think maybe you realize like how like uh, unique it is. Your your dad basically sounds like created space for you to step out, lead, interact with other adults at a very young age. And then did he kind of praise you or encourage you or was just kind of like, hey, this is just expected and normal. And it just felt like it was your normal thing to do.
1: Definitely expected. It was yeah. that price. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe it was good of him. Maybe it was lazy of him that he didn't want to call for the pizzas and made me do it. I don't I don't know.
0: <laughs> no, it's just interesting. It's a uh, yeah. And then to, to do all the communication with the realtor, maybe he was so busy with teaching and, and the vending machines. That it was just a necessity to have you help out in those ways.
1: Maybe. Maybe I enjoyed it. He could see that, that I enjoyed it. I think and he was just encouraging it in his own way possibility yeah young boys so like to help franken. out
0: you know they want to help out in the family and so it could be that yeah yeah i mean
1: kids in general they can't necessarily distinguish play from work it's it's the same to them so being able to help the family probably was fun for me honestly so definitely my dad did that and then i alluded to my first boss his name is scott he was the guy who sold on ebay and i learned how to buy and sell underneath his tutelage um I was there for two weeks in that job and he came and said, Hey, you're special. You should follow me around. And my job became to be his personal assistant for a couple of years and literally just sit in the car as he made phone calls, driving to different clients or be in the room and be quiet, but be in the room during all his meetings. And I got a firsthand interaction with what executive communication looks like. Uh, I very much got thrown into the deep end in my job. I think a lot of people have the opportunity to maybe go to school and then they get their first job and they learn how to communicate with their peers and their, their boss, who's more of a supervisor. And then they grow a little bit. They have a level manager and the type of communication changes both in style and like truncation. Uh, and then as you continue up the proverbial ladder of your career, um, Communication continues to change. Uh, in, in the C-suite, it's very short, right? It's yes, no emails that fly back and forth constantly. There's not a lot by way of verbiage that happens and to say, unless it really needs to happen, and that's usually a bad thing. Um, in my career, I never really got a chance to experience that early communication um, because what we do tends to be a luxury you don't get a lot of internal employees buying our service. And because my knowledge set tends to be about brands that are a little more luxury as well, there's a a positive correlation there. So we get a lot of executives and C-suite, people buying our service. So all my communication with them, from like right out of school, was immediately C-suite test documentation. So you kind of have to get that confidence real fast or it's a sink or swim, essentially. And Scott was instrumental in helping me understand how to communicate, what to expect. You know, I would type up a big email because I wanted to be so polite and professional and give information. He would, you know, cut out 98% of it and say that's unnecessary, that's fluff. It's nice, but they don't care. You need to be faster in your communication um, where I you know, send what you might consider a terse text now, but it's it's to the point, it's quick. And my main clients tend to really like that kind of communication. Um, I have to teach uh, my assistants when they come in how to communicate because they tend to be very friendly and happy. And that's great. That's nice. But also that adds to the word count. I need you to cut that word count down because if the words they have to read, the actual happier they are in life.
0: Yep. I think yeah, a lot of people who are, are green, they're used to communicating with peers. And so it's about emotionally being like, hey, I'm good. Are you good? You're doing a lot of that emotional man- management bookkeeping. But when you're getting out there and you're in the work world for a while, every long message is like work for you to have to parse and figure out like, what do I need to, to decide? What do I need to action on this? And so the shorter it is, actually the kinder you're being a lot of times to other yeah. people.
1: And <laughs> I think you hit a, a good thing there. You talk about, you know, a long message. Basically, if I send you a long email, I'm attempting to manage your emotional state. That's not my job, right? That's your job. It's your emotional state. So a quick email implies that one, we have the relationship. And two, we're both confident what we're doing. I'm just trying to tell you to let you know you can receive that. If you're of the same, you know, communication style, the The challenge happens when you have miscommunication, right? Because you're used to this and I'm used to this or vice versa, that that can be a challenge sometimes. And that was my challenge early on is that I didn't know how to do that. But, you know, you get on the deep end, you will swim eventually.
0: Yep. Yep, exactly. And uh, it's, um, that's so interesting. So, uh, It sounds like HR was kind of your first image consulting clients in a way. You probably didn't know what you, it was at first, right? But yeah. And so tell me more about that. Like how did, um, did he do some interviews? Did he kind of get back on his feet? Did he figure out a next step?
1: He got a job, uh, using the outfit, um, which he really enjoyed. Um, he ended up working for racetrack. Uh, Did pretty well there. Um, and then when could kind of life allow he got back into paint because he loves paint
0: nice nice yeah and so when you were able to like be there in that moment and kind of see the effect it had on his psychology and his um yeah his like uh depression or his blues um did you immediately say you know what i want to do more of this or kind of how did how did the next client come about
1: there's a phrase um that a a writer named Thomas Kuhn uses. It's all at once, but not in an instant. And I think that that is how my emotional progression happened. I think it happened all at once, but for me, it wasn't in an instant. I had to kind of reflect on that and realize how significant that was. Um, And the value of that grew inside of me. So that by the time I graduated college, I realized that I wanted to work for an image consultant and I needed to go through a it. because that's so not like a typical career path. So I had to find someone who would take on that. Did a you know apprentice. what that
0: word was at the time? No, I had no
1: idea. So there was a lot of, you know, early Googling that happened to figure out what exactly is it that I enjoy? Is that a service that people offer? Can you make money doing it? Is it enough money to have a livelihood? Do I want to do that? You know, will that, well, converting my hobby into a career killed the hobby. You don't really know that you know, going in. Huh. And I, I did. I ended up finding somebody. My dad's family lived in, uh, in and around the Charleston area, North Charleston and Mount Pleasant, Daniel Island. So I ended up moving to Charleston after college to work for an image consultant to learn the business side of it. And I had signed a do not compete in that market. So I ended up moving back to Atlanta afterwards to start my own business. How long did you work there? I think from like May until September, it was a pretty short apprenticeship. Um, Unfortunately, what I learned is that um, she, she was not very good at the business side of things. So there wasn't a lot to learn, unfortunately. So I sort of had to find my own way for better or for worse.
0: Did that lead to it being a shorter apprenticeship partially? It did.
1: It did. It wasn't like we, you know, she let me go or I resigned. It's just sort of to a a natural conclusion that I've taught you all that I know in three months. That's my labor. So... You know, the onus was on me to go out and, and learn myself, which is probably why I am one way I read a ton, and two, why I fly to England and interview shoemakers in the factory for hours, or go to denim shops and talk to denim heads about different warps and wefts and leg twists and colors of denim, because I really want to know, and there isn't necessarily one place to find out, so you have to go.
0: So, okay. So you came back to Atlanta after that in September?
1: I think it was September. Yeah. And September.
0: how did you go about getting your initial clients? Were you going to network events, using social media? Like what, what was the way that you did your initial sales?
1: It was mostly networking. I did do some sort of events. I was not good at them.
0: You mean you hosted your own events?
1: No, I would attend networking events. So I joined a city club in Atlanta, and that was somewhat helpful. It's a very niche thing that that I offer. And it's not easy to go up to someone and say, hey, you don't look good. I can help you, and you should pay me for that. <laughs> That's that, that usually does not solicit friendly reaction, Harry, in case you're curious. Um, so... Again, I had to point back to Scott because it was mostly he let me tap into his network, and he said, "Hey, this guy is back. This is what he's doing. We should support him. You know, some of my friends should hire him to help." And so, my first round of clients came from sort of loose connections, friends of friends, who hired me for like basically no money. Like I was almost free back in the day, but still, for me, it was close. It was getting paid something. I think it was like twenty five dollars an hour, right? to run around and buy things for people. Um,
0: Let's dig into the, just just dig it, like hold on this for a second because I think it's so important for people to see. It's like, because you had spent years um, doing the buying and selling, um, learning from Scott how to list things on eBay and pick up the freight and all that, um, uh, putting yourself out there, meeting people, getting becoming friends with these sales reps. When you came back to Atlanta, you probably had this pretty... Decent warm network to tap into. Is that fair? Yeah. So yeah. you you didn't you knew at the time you had there was benefits of establishing those relationships, but you didn't establish those relationships thinking that you could use it later in an even more beneficial way to establish your business. I just think it's important for people to see how much value there is in building a network, even if you don't immediately at first glance see why or how you're going to use it. Um, you just are putting in deposits into relationships like that. Um, any any I'm reaction or comment on that?
1: Never burn a bridge, right? Because you never, ever, ever know what you might need or have interest in down the road. Um, I think I just have a legitimate interest in story. So for me to talk to someone, I would rather not talk about what I do for a living, which is what networking events tend to end up being because when people find out that I'm a stylist, uh, walls go up real fast.
0: They're self-conscious. And they want to hide. Um, Why do you think that is? I, they, they think they're being judged by you or something?
1: They think they're being judged. Um, they're just self-conscious. Um, and that has more to do with their baggage and the fact that I'm a stylist.
0: Do you feel like that's but even between man, men and women? Or is it, you know, no. what's that?
1: Definitely. Men, men care just as much. They're just more closeted about it. It's difficult in the South to be a male who cares about your image and then let it be known that you care about your image that does not typically solicit positive reactions from other men who are watching football. So yes, everyone is self-conscious. So when I go to networking events, I just want to ask about you. I'm, I'm curious what you do and what you love. If I can find someone's passion, I can listen for hours to talk about their passion. So networks are super important. Because I guarantee that you're as passionate about something as I am about the fiber that makes up this publisher. But I'm going to bore you to tears if I talk about this fiber. So I want to hear what you're passionate about instead. Uh, And sometimes those do end up being clients. Usually they're just connections that lead, and they can lead to like, you know, I have a friend of a friend who might want to
0: use you. It's nice to be thought of. I call those people like champions, right? Yeah, definitely. They may not be clients, but they are now all of a sudden like in your corner or they're like a fan and they want to help you. And so they'll, yeah, they'll make those connections and open up their network to you because they they trust that you're not going to uh, put your foot in your mouth or be weird or pushy or awkward with their trusted relationships and things, you know?
1: Definitely. Um, again, we still sort of a niche service. Um, and usually you don't want to approach someone and tell them what you did they they should hire you. So outside sales aren't really a thing for us. So networking events tend to be less helpful for business purposes, even though you might find a champion. Usually people think, oh, that's really interesting, and then they, they move on um, because that luxury isn't for them. It's for someone that they perceive as much higher status than mine. Uh, so by and large, all of our clients find us organically or their referrals from clients who I have in general not met
0: to network. But I think it's Uh, because I would, I would think that makes a ton of sense to me, but it's like bootstrapping the business is the hard part. It's like once you bootstrap it and you do well by the clients, then you get that word of mouth and you get people coming inbound. Um, do you remember any, any sort of moment where you felt like it was clicking or you felt like it was taking on a life of its own and the initial, like the sales got easier?
1: Uh, yes. So I, I tend to collect mentors. I think that it's really important to find people who are older than you. If you can find someone in your field, that's great, but it doesn't mean be in your field. It's just someone who can take an interest in you. And then literally just shut up and let them talk. Because your job is to listen as a mentee. Um, they have valuable things to say. So I, I've done that my whole life. And I remember that I was, I was out selling, trying to get clients. Enjoying the process, but it was not so profitable. It's a lot of work. Uh, And one of my mentors at the time was an architect. And he had designed one of the HGTV dream houses. Um, And he was gaining some traction sort of nationally. And he had paid um, some work guys to come in and do an audit of his client list and give him some business suggestions. And this is fascinating. Um, they, they interviewed his clients and they gave him a list of who they said were his happiest clients. And it shocked him because the list were people who had spent the most money on his service. And he thought that's very counterintuitive. You, people who give value typically thinking happier. No, it was people who had spent the most because they had allowed him the budget and freedom to have a creative process and really enabled his creative work. And therefore, they were happy to the end. So in response to this, he like doubled his prices because if the clients who spend the most are actually the happiest, uh, let's just find those clients. And so I did the exact same thing. I doubled my prices and I doubled it again. Um, and my clients started to boom. I started getting get more and more and more clients because I think there's a, there's a bit of psychosomatic uh, manipulation that happens here you talk to spend to it like, oh, that's, spent to, that must be good, right? Well, not necessarily, but in our our case, yes, um, people pay a lot for something. They think it must be good. Um, and they, they value themselves, right? So if you're a cheap service, I don't want you for myself. I want something that's good for myself, right? So you have to, as a creator, you have to value yourself in terms of your price point because then others won't value you also. Um, and it, and then what that leads to is clients who stay in their lane. Uh, most clients are good at something, very good. That's why they have the lane to afford what we do. Uh, they should do more of that. They should not try and get into what we do. I, they Buying and selling and vendor visits and returns is not their skill set, right? So let us what we do really well. We found that clients, so a couple maybe commonalities in our clients people who are the most successful tend to stay in their lane. They tend to outsource most things in their lives. So they outmeat simple things like they have a house cleaner, which saves them a couple hours, which buys them time back in their life. Um, but also like house manager, personal trainers, personal chefs. Um, we're just an oh, acquisition part of that for them. So they realize that they have a need socially to present themselves not naked, and then also, world
0: rest progression <laughs> um, this is important to say because I think a lot of people um you know I feel like there's there's two broad swaths of buyers out there in in any market there are people that are like more cost conscious and they're looking for price is a big signal for them, like is it affordable, is it cheap right. and then there's the other people who are value conscious, which is like is this um yeah, basically going to get the job done, and I'm much more flexible on pricing because it's more important to me to get this done well and like work with a professional and then um, pay the least amount and then have to do it myself or like do do it over. Absolutely. You know, and there's not really, I love that quote. There's, there isn't strategic. It's not a good strategy to be the second lowest price, you know? <laughs> no. So if you can't compete with Walmart or whatever, which most people can as like small businesses, it makes so much more sense to figure out how can I charge more for what I'm doing and and go for like a niche higher end experience, but most of us who are new in business, we don't, we're not customers of of that experience. And so it's hard for us to see that there's actually a market out there for that. We don't know how to talk to those types of people. We don't know how they make decisions. We don't know what's important to them. So it's just, um, that's, I think that's one of the hardest things for, for new people getting into their own business is figuring that out.
1: You don't, what you don't know is why mentorship is so important because a mentor can see beyond your kind of limited goal. So, well, if you're aiming here, you maybe should be aiming over here. Instead.
0: Yep. And it's the mistake is to think, well, I would only pay X amount for this or I would only pay Y for whatever. Therefore, like I'm going to charge what I would pay. And it's like, if you're not your own customer, then you should not be thinking in those service.
1: I had a retail boss who taught me when I was selling to uh, customers, don't shop with your wallet, shop with theirs. Because it's actually a disservice. You're being rude if you inflict your values judgment on that individual. It's Sort of like a long email. My job to manage your emotional state or your finances. So what do you value? And uh, how can I help you find things that are right for you, not right for me? I'm not the client.
0: Yep. Yeah. So and it takes an ability to kind of quiet your own ego and step out of your way, like, um, um. And it sounds like, I mean, you, you probably were already able to do that from all those early years, but that is, it sounds to be very important to what you do is just, yeah, just not to inject yourself too much in the process.
1: I find that most people, when they buy, when they have to do something retail buy in general, their default is risk mitigation. They just don't know enough and they want to minimize risk, which leads to them being cost conscious or then value conscious. I think that my number one job of what I do is simply education because most people, they have some area of their life where they're knowledgeable and therefore spent because they like the thing could be food or travel or cars, whatever. Um, if I can give you the words to express what it is that you want, so your unexpressed preferences become voiced desires, and then I can show you the things that meet your desires. You're probably going to buy the thing, right? I'm not talking you into a thing. But what I do is very consultative. I'm trying to listen first, and then say, "I think you're saying this. Maybe a better way to express that is this, and this might meet those needs." That's all that I do.
0: It's um, I love that you just said, said that because yeah, a lot of times if you can articulate back to somebody uh, their own needs and desires better than they can say it themselves, then they say yes and they want to move forward with you. <laughs> you know, you should listen for it. It's just like, wow, not only does this person listen, they understand what I'm looking for better than I do. I'm in the hands of like somebody who, yeah, it's basically a professional or an expert relative to me. Therefore, it's it's an easy decision. It's not It's not a... I'm not adding risk to my situation to say yes. I'm actually removing risk to move forward and say yes to work. It
1: seems like that, but you do being professionally. You essentially listen to artists and then help us grow by letting us also listen along with you and you ask good questions to clarify their okay. positions.
0: Yeah, I, 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 uh, having done probably hundreds, having done definitely hundreds, maybe even thousands of sales calls, a lot, of, a lot of good sales calls are being consultative like that and, um, asking good questions, listening in. And and saying things back, and so I think that is being helpful with these podcasts I've been doing for sure.
1: Um, I'm really not interested in selling something to anyone, to be quite frank, right? Because if you don't already want it, I don't want you to make you want it. I think that maybe you already want it, and that you don't know that you want it. If we get to the end of the day, and I've explained what I do, and you're like, eh, if I talk you into it, you're going to feel talked into it. At the end of the day, it's going to be a negative experience. People remember not what you do, but how you make them feel, right? popular quote, if you feel manipulated, it's going to be a negative client interaction for both of us. So I'd rather not sell you anything ever.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's like that saying people don't like to be sold to, but they love to buy. So great salespeople create the conditions for someone to be able to buy without feeling pushed. But, uh, I call that sales still, but I get your point. Like it typically sales has a more of a connotation of being pushy and, and, uh, nudging them feeling like it wasn't their decision and then they have buyers remorse or they're frustrated or whatever it might be um totally so okay so we you're back in Atlanta getting things going uh your mentor the architecture mentor helped you um what were some other like early insights or takeaways from those first years as an image consultant that were breakthroughs for you
1: Themes things, and then distill them down for you.
0: When did you first get a client like outside of Atlanta, um, in other cities? That's a good question.
1: Um, it was pretty early on. I s- I created a website, kind of one of the first things. Um, I'm really not on social media. I should be. It's definitely a failing. In fact, after this today, I have a phone call um, with a potential uh, marketing guy because I, I realized that as a a failure of my own, but I had a, a website pretty early on and I was an early adopter for Squarespace. So my site looked better than almost anybody else's site without doing a lot. Like it didn't take a lot back then to have a good site. And someone outside of Atlanta found me and we had a phone call and like, I drove, to, I he was in Tennessee. Like, I drove to him. Um, I'm not sure I charged for travel for the initial meet and greet. And then he drove to Atlanta and I took him from like store to store to store and and helped him. Uh, I will say that that's another thing that I learned early on. Uh, As an early artist, refining your process is probably the most important thing that you can do. Uh, I tell my staff now what we sell is actually two things. We sell efficiency and we sell knowledge. So everything that we do in terms of process and output has to be put in those two filters: is it efficient for us and for the client? Client most, and you know, are we learning something through this process? Does this help them in some way? Those early clients used to. So, I learned from that image consultant that I worked for in, in Charleston to take clients to physical brick and mortar stores, and what she would do is she would go in. It's called pre-shop, and this is a really popular style go to the store first, introduce themselves, pull things on a rack, put in the fitting room, and then bring the client back, let them try that on in the store, but not have to like browse the store. And I I realized that that was probably great for the kinds of clients that she was seeing who weren't paying her very much. Um, If I want to keep my prices at like, you know, $20 an hour, the kind of client who's going to pay that for a personal shopper probably wants to walk the store with you. Um, but I learned through this Tennessee client and some others, uh, that what we offer is efficiency, true products and and understanding that I sold efficiency helped me rethink that whole process. So we, we moved from, instead of doing that, now I'll go to a client's home, I'll see what they own because it gives me a good insight for their benchmark. So I know what words to use to grow their vocabulary and expectations. And then I, I'll measure it with a cloth tape measure because tag sizes are wildly inconsistent, as I think all of listeners attest to. I take that information and then I create a collection now. So I don't, I sometimes go to different stores, but usually I'm, I'm calling the nerds from e-commerce. I'm using the client's measurements and then their needs and goals, what they already have. To pull things for them. So we aggregate everything into our office as raw data. And then we unbox it and arrange it so that the data makes sense, whether uh, by comparison, you know, all shirts together or as outfits. And then we take that to a client's home. It's a publish in their office or their house where everything is their size. And everything is their style because what we sell again is efficiency. So I need to help you digest the world offers very quickly, a couple hours from your home, and then give you immediate access to it.
0: So you're not and, tied to individual brands. You're pulling stuff from different stores, different things, and it's all tailored to the one client, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that would be a part of our, our sales spiel, if you will, to, to a, a new prospective client is, again, it's education. People don't really understand how the process works for stylists. So if you go to a, a store like a Nordstrom and there's personal stylists that are free, they're free for a reason, you're buying Nordstrom merchandise and therefore Nordstrom's paying that individual. So they're both incentivized to sell you stuff and they're tied to that store. You have outside stylists who can shop from any store. Most stylists will charge you a commission on what you purchase. So they're incentivized to sell you more. And to me, that was almost unethical because if, let's say you are a jack and there's two that are good, this store pays me 5% and this store pays me 10%. Harry, who am I going to sell to you? Right. Yeah. Really straightforward. Yeah. Right? And I never wanted that ethical dilemma because if 5% is better for you, 10% means I get to go to a nicer dinner tonight. I didn't, I didn't want to have to choose.
0: I, that um, reminds me, like I worked with a interior decorator once and uh, they did a good job. I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but yeah, I remember them saying they had like some sort of commission with different places they work with and they would split the commission with me. But then I learned like that the price... Was very inflated relative to like if I found the item myself online no. elsewhere, and it's just uh, you don't feel good when you learn about that, even if it's a good, you know, no good experience. It just feels like uh, the incentives There's aren't aligned. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so far as I know, I've never met any house who do this. We declined commission across the board on Ready to Wear stuff. I just don't think it's ethical. Um, we've gone to all the vendors who offer us commission and say instead of giving us commission would you consider converting that into a discount for the client we can pass along to the client? Because in my opinion, that's a win-win-win. The client pays less money. The store sells more stuff. They can only get the discount through us. So that's a win for us because it it increases loyalty, right? I'm always looking for those like true wins across the board. I probably could have made more money in my career. I certainly could have if I had taken commission on this. But again, early on, I learned that get rich slow. Loyalty is really important. So I'm looking for that long-term legacy client load where they trust me because I I thrive on these relationships I've mentioned before. I, I really enjoy those opportunities to truly help someone in their closet feel good. And if you realize that you felt good and then I overcharged you for the item, you would feel less good, right? I would undermine myself. That just seems silly. So I guess got, it, makes, like early it on, sounds like it
0: makes it the client very much feel like you're in their corner, like you're representing them, not representing uh-huh. you and other people and the in the vendors, you know, if that makes sense.
1: I try and even use the analogy like an attorney. Like I am your representation in the retail landscape. You don't know what you're doing. So let me guide you and and really be your advocate. And we we fight for refunds from vendors on behalf of clients. And um, when things don't go according to plan, because I mean, things do happen, right? And nothing's perfect. So if something buy, someone buys a shoe and the sole falls off, like I'm fighting for like, a brand new shoe for free right now. Like, I'm doing all those little things I would want done for me as someone actually cared about me. So, yes, I didn't have to, I didn't have to learn to care about clients, but I had to learn to be efficient about it uh, for sure.
0: One of the things I feel like is really good about your process, like you said, you have you have a process to it. Um, in my opinion, I would call it an opinionated process. You don't feel like, uh, you, Joshua are waiting for the client to give you direction. You're always, uh, basically have direction. And then when you need their input, you ask questions and stuff. Can you speak to that? Like, um, uh, would you agree that it's an opinionated process and how did you decide to do that and be so kind of efficient with it? Um,
1: yes, um, I have trouble in this area not coming across as arrogant, uh-huh. Um because it is opinionated, but it's opinionated because there's there's so much experience behind it. Uh-huh. So the typical interaction with a client is, you know, let's say they want a pair of nice dress shoes, right? So I need to ask what nice means. And I think the, asking that question can sound condescending because it's it's like, well, I know what nice means. What nice means? So I really have to make sure that I appropriately address the tone of my voice, everything that I say around these entry-level questions to make sure that the client knows I'm really only asking because I want to best serve you. I want to step into your shoes with you. So I need to know what you mean by nice. So I approach that by helping just define really simple words like you want a nice pair of shoes. What does nice mean to you? What do shoes mean to you? Because you would think that like we could agree on a definition of shoes, but as it turns out, your idea of a dress shoe, I have a dress shoe could be wildly different. So listening is really important because it is opinionated. And remember, I'm not dressing me, I'm dressing you. So taking into account what you think you want is important, even if what you want isn't right. And I have struggled with this over the years that uh, the client can ask for things that are objectively wrong. And early on, I used to just say, well, if the client really wants it, I'll give it to them. The older I get, the more I am less willing to compromise on things that ultimately I know will disserve the client um, because it'll waste their time and money, both in terms of our labor services and also they will have bought something that they will regret. When I was young, going into these couture, uh couture ITAs, the, the, the shops where they sold high fashion, I would ask them, you know, could you do X, Y, and Z for me? And they would just say no. And that was shocking because back then I really wasn't selling I was trying to sell something to clients. And I thought, well, I'm offering you money in exchange for a service. And as an American, this is money and that's gold and you should take it, right? And that wasn't how it worked. And I understand now ever why that was the case, because that's not what they do. They do something really well and they don't want me to compromise the process. So when someone asks me something outside of my skill set, I just politely decline. Um, I've actually got negative reviews for politely declining. They wanted me to do something that I just didn't do and so they blasted me on social. I'm really sorry, but I, I still don't do that thing that you've asked me to do. I wish that I did, but I don't. It's, it's,
0: I, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, most of the artists that I work with, they're painters. They're um... painters. And, um, I think there's this tendency people who are new to business can have of having, it's like, (laughs) I don't mean this to be mean, but it's, it's just a funny image, but like sort of like the McDonald's menu sort of energy that people have where they're like, I can do everything like, and everything's on the menu and everything has a price. And all of a sudden now as the buyer, I feel like I have more work to do. I have to figure out what is the right path and am I going to be happy with it? But, um. That's one of the things I really uh, admired about you and your process was just, um, like, uh, how opinionated you were. And even though, yeah, of course you're, you're, you're getting information from the client, but you, there was never a point where you were like, well, this is what I do next. Is that cool with you? (laughs) Any sort of question that would create doubt that like, you don't know what you're doing. Does that make sense? (laughs) I never considered that, but thank you. That's nice to hear. Yeah. So, uh, can you touch a little bit more about like your, your on, I don't know what you call it, your intake form or your onboarding form? Like you have a lot of questions you ask clients. We,
1: we do. Um, I just call it an intake process. Um, I, as again, I want to be consultative in my approach. So I really want to understand what it is that you think you need. You may actually need, but the listening part is important because I can help grow you from. So. I ask a variety of easy to answer questions first to get the client comfortable, like your height, your eye color, just any preferences, um, and then we dig into baggage pretty quick. I ask clients uh, two really key questions that I learned over the years: are the things that are usually unexpressed. You know, if you had to be vain for a moment, what do you like about yourself physically, and then conversely, what do you dislike? Fashion in general can enhance or it can mitigate. And I want to help you enhance things that you like about yourself and mitigate those that you don't. And I just want them to begin thinking about clothing as more than just cloth that covers your body because you have to wear it. Or as a social statement. I, I teach clients that are incoming that people typically buy something for one of three general reasons. Uh, gender symbols, status symbols, and brand, or a tribe affiliation. And I want them to be cognizant of why they're asking for a thing. So the intake form, if you like the fact that you're tall, I can enhance that. If you want to mitigate that fact, I can also mitigate that as well. Let's be less beholden to what you're buying and more cognizant of why you're buying because already a better thing out there that can solve this. Um, and then I ask a series of either or questions that are really, um, important for my process in not over serving the client. Um, I ask basically if life were binary, if, would you rather look good or be comfortable? Mm -hmm. That helps me address actually a budget question because there are lots of brands that do both. Um, but if you had to choose, it means you probably aren't going to spin for the one who can do both considering quite experience. Uh, then I ask some questions like uh, uh trying to think of a, oh, are you a a value shopper or a best in class shopper? And most people are like, oh, I'm best in class, am I the best of things? So I'm like, really? That that's great. And are, I typically ask them what car they drive. And the, yeah, I drive an M5. That's cool. You didn't go for the 745 Li. And if they're in a 745, well, you didn't get the bravis version because there's there's always a better. And I'm trying to understand why they drew a line in the sand. The line matters way more to me than what they actually bought. I don't really care what it. What I care about is the insight into their decision-making process. Very few people are actually best in class shoppers who will research for hours and hours and buy the very best thing at any cost and at any time. But almost no one like
0: that. Yeah, let's just touch on this again for a second. So I think it's a it's a really powerful idea that in a consultative setting, in a sales setting, whatever you want to call it, sometimes we ask questions where it's not about information transfer. It's not actually about the direct content of their answer. It's about, like you said their thought process, why they arrived at that. And it's that indirect information that helps you help them better going forward. So if they said, yeah, like I drive an M5, you're like, tell me more about that. Why why isn't it why an M five? Or um yeah, why not the 745? Like it's that that play with the the answer and kind of figuring out that gives you a lot of the insights.
1: I um sometimes I get this mostly happens with men. 'Cause we, we we shop for men and women. When I ask I I ask the men about their cars. Because most men like cars. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, they'll have a, they think it's a nice car and they'll answer accordingly. Well, I drive a my, my, my daily is a Ferrari four five nine. That's cool. Why didn't you buy the, the next one up? And it has them kind of they they jerk back a little bit and they're thinking, Well, most people are impressed by this, you should be impressed too. I'm just trying to get them to think introspectively about why they drew a line there. So, right, it is always indirect information. I had a client last week who told telling me his daily driver was a Ferrari 812 super fast. Um, and he's really into guns. And so he carries an h and I was like, that's cool. You didn't get a Wilson Combat. And he, he leaned in he's like, what's Wilson Combat? <laughs> like he didn't even know like the better existed, which is a um, I said So you would have bought the better if you knew it existed. Well, yeah. Okay, that, that's helping me. An 812 is not a cheap car. There is better, but like he's in general maxing out when he's probably allowed to buy it for um, It's hard to get the, the better cars unless you're a client for years. So that gives me the information of, ah, is he, if he knows it exists, he will buy it. So what I can do in his case, when I go buy clothes, jackets, clothes, shoes, I can go and get what I think of as the very best and educate him why a t-shirt in this case is three thousand dollars i do not advocate anyone buy that t-shirt but if you're out having the very best this is what the best means and i can usually focus on i learned this early on too. um understanding the metrics of what i'm advocating saying that something is the best in an artistic sense is really difficult because it's art how can you make a value statement about art i can't but what i can do make a statement about the things that go into the art. So the feel aspect is intangible, right? But I can say, okay, the fibers in this are X and they're they're rare and this is Y. The construction is rare or expensive. These are the things that contribute to that price point. If you value those metrics, I can scale for them and help you find things that adhere to that, that value schema in your life.
0: Let me ask you this. So on that note, like, I think a lot of people who've never... May not even know, like, oh yeah, their T-shirts itself for three thousand dollars. That's just like shocking. It's just so out of their their um, normal purview. Um, would you agree that when you talk about the construction and the history and the materials going into the piece, that that really is a way to help the client rationalize making the purchasing decision? But the fact that they are willing to spend that much is, has more to do with the client and their desire for the best and their budget and less to do with the actual product itself. What, what are your thoughts on that question?
1: I think there's a yes and a no to that. I think that there is a bell curve in uh, material goods. So on the low end you have, we can use clothes. An H&M or Zara where their garment is cheap in terms of fabric and construction, right? Yeah. Uh, it will fall apart somewhat quickly, but it's so cheap that you can rationalize that, here, right? As you up the scale, you hit this curve where brands typically give you better materials and better construction for a higher price. And if your metric is longevity, which is what a lot of people care about when they're buying clothes, and most planters confused, that is not everyone's metric too um, but if longevity is, is a metric for you um then that's not rationalization that's you know a cost per wear metric yes that fabric lasts longer than this fabric that thread that joins the seams lasts long this is, is just it's just a better shirt but as you keep going it falls off again where you have uh longevity uh, falls off um and it's more akin to like fine china at that point, you have to have an artistic appreciation for the thing. And I'm not sure it's a rationalization because it's just a different metric you're scaling for. So asking about, are you rationalizing the purchase, assumes that the metric is longevity, where spending X gets you five years, spending Y gets you two years at more comfort. But if the metric is different, right? If you care about different things, then the bell curve probably changes a little bit.
0: I, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at is... um uh, there was a old, I think, preacher or theologian from England back in the day. He had this line that was, "Um, the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so that's what I'm trying to get at is that basically like, whether you're at the low end with H.M. and Zara uh, or in that middle part for, where longevity is important or the high part where it's artistic elements, it's almost like there's something about the nature of that client, where they're in their life, the amount of success they've had, the amount of money they have, the resources they have, where they just desire that item. And then they're looking for you or a story to help them justify that that it's it makes sense for them. You know, in that case, there's some sort of logic to them pulling the trigger and purchasing that. Um, that have you seen that in your experience? Does that make sense at all?
1: It does. And. I have a, um, a phrase that I try and use to combat that. Cause I want clients to go on eyes wide open. Okay. If you sell a story, or use something mm-hmm. intangible at some point, the shine wears off. So it, it's difficult to do that. I make sure they know that nothing we're doing today is need based. If you need a coat cause you're cold, don't call me. That's <laughs> not what I do for a living. If you need clothes cause you're naked, don't call me. Walmart's down the street. Um, uh, what we do is not a need-based thing. So I want to take off the table the need to rationalize, well, do I need a $3,000 t-shirt? Does it keep me warm? No, no one, no one needs a $3,000 t-shirt. Even at the upper echelons, no one can tell but you. It feels nicer. It, it's a lovely shirt. Don't get me wrong. It's a lovely shirt. Right. But no one needs that, right? So, But they might have, have, feel um, like
0: they have a need subconsciously for... To be in a, in a strata of people that can afford that. Like knowing that they have this and other people don't. <laughs> like, you know, whether it's conscious or not, something like that can be at play. And uh, I feel like as soon yeah. as you put the clothes on and if you like how it makes you feel, you like how it looks, now all of a sudden the brain starts trying to rationalize why you should buy it, even if the price is a little bit more than you were expecting to pay or, or what have you.
1: So you have the right intake process and we, we attempt to address that a little bit. Because on the main page of the intake, what we ask for is we break clients' lives down into verticals or silos based on use case or environment. So a common uh, split is let's say they have to let's say they have a job, right? Because everyone does, Um, they have to go to work, and they're in a boardroom. That would be a a vertical. This so they have work on a daily basis, not boardroom. That's a vertical. And they have social engagements. That's three verticals in their life they have to dress differently for. Well, in the boardroom, that might be because they are investor-facing or shareholder-facing. So the expectations socially around that are different than maybe a closed-door in-office session versus entertaining clients or with known audiences, members, right? So in each vertical, we ask, who is the audience, what is the goal, and who gets a vote in the process? Those three things equip me to be able to help a client navigate the need, so if that t-shirt we just mentioned for three thousand dollars if they're in a social environment where everyone is wearing this high-end brand and has developed a palette for it, or an eye for it and they can see that and they and they want to fit in with that environment then yeah sure there's there's rationalization for it at that level that if you want that person to be a friend and your friendship is based on a communal success or equal success at some yeah. level and you think it's going to help you, then sure, there, there's rationalization. And then maybe there is a need because that success together breeds a relationship that makes you more money or gives you more access or power than sure balance.
0: But a lot of this is, to your point, it's not necessarily always conscious. It could be happening at like a, a low level or they're not voicing it. They're not comfortable voicing some of this this dynamic, if that makes sense.
1: They don't voice it. I'm not sure it's because they're uncomfortable. They've just never been asked to. Right. Right, and I'm asking to step back and think more critically about why are we buying these things? Are we buying because we're telling ourselves that it's somehow prettier and better and shinier? Because that shine again is it's going to wear off, right? Let's be cognizant of why we're making our purchasing decisions on the forefront, so that you feel like I can represent you better. Again, I don't want to sell you a t shirt you don't already want. It.
0: Right. Now you mentioned earlier you work with both men and women. When did you start working with? Did you start working with men exclusively and then did you make a decision to work with women or how did that come about?
1: From the onset of my career, I've kind of always helped both. The consultant I worked for in Charleston was a woman, and our clients there were women. Um, and so my earliest clients were also women as well. It's a very different conversation. Uh, typically, women are a lot more aware of their they would call them flaws, their their they're baggage they bring to the mirror. Um, which just means that our process can be a little bit more straightforward. Then I have to sort of tease it out of them because they don't think introspectively about their emotional baggage around image quite as often. The media doesn't make that. worse. women have kind of an onslaught. This is what you should be. This is where you are. And there's a margin. Got it.
0: Got it. Are there any other interesting yeah, it almost sounds like with women, yeah, because they're they're almost they come typically more educated about these considerations. So you can maybe have a quicker conversation sometimes with them.
1: They're educated. the The challenge there is they tend to have more developed preferences, which can be bad habits that are harder to break. Whereas men have fewer habits and sometimes mm-hmm. no habits. It's easy to teach. Uh, they're that like kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> some men are blank slates now some men require wiping the slate quite a lot, and it's over. um Women, of course, present the exact same way there are, There are some blank slates actually, uh fewer, and it's a lot more about kind of correcting um unhelpful behavior. They didn't realize that they were accentuating an unflattering aspect. I teach them how to you know, do different things um. And the value thresholds change quite a lot there as well just because the nature of women's fashion are cyclical and men's fashion having a little more staying power and therefore being more comfortable investing in higher quality pieces that last longer.
0: Cool, cool. Now, you mentioned earlier also that you um, haven't done much on social media. Have you dabbled with it in the past? And and why is it something you just haven't put a, a priority into so far?
1: I have attempted it in the past. Um, I don't do it for two reasons. One, it, it takes a lot of time, and I ha- don't have a lot of time to give. We're not hurting for clients, so taking time away from existing client work to post something on social media seems like a. a, a it'd be good for pipeline. It is bad in the immediacy, and I'd rather make the deadline today than prepare for tomorrow, which probably is a bad thing. Um, but I'm aware of it and trying to fix
0: it. It's it's uh, really tough. It's like if you get good at service delivery and sales, you basically can spend all your time on those two things. And then you're like, don't have any time, yeah, left over for that longer term focus. So that definitely resonates with me. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: And then I know if I open oh, my plan, I'm going to get a lot of phone calls out of the field, but we're not our clients. And that's to that take extra time as well, is, you know, qualifying the leads and right now, when we get a client that calls, it's about a 30-minute conversation with any prospective lead about what we do, how we do it. And the website is set up so that it feels luxurious as a hint that, like, it, it probably is expensive. And, of course, you would never tell someone like they can't afford it. That's, that's just rude. I mean, you could mortgage your house and afford what we do if you, if you want to. And please don't do that. But, spending time qualifying more leads means now now I do have to hire someone to social media, I have to hire someone else to qualify leads that I've attracted based on social media. So it can be a great thing for a pipeline, absolutely. Um I just don't have much of an ego surrounding marketing myself. And I, I see a lot of vast social media. Lots of folks don't have one. They just posting, but I just don't have a need to get external validation from people there saying, Hey, that's cool, or what are you doing? Um, you have to manage it. And I just don't have the bandwidth right now to manage it. I'm trying to find it.
0: There is um <laughs> this comedian that I like, and they will always um on their their show, they'll podcast, they'll feature different interesting characters from social media. And one of the ones that they found was this um taylor i think he's in hong kong maybe he's somewhere in asia and he does these amazing little reels where he'll have a client and he's showing the the, uh suit jacket and the lining and all these elements and he just has this sort of panache and flair and it's it's kind of entertaining and funny and um yeah i mean it's it's not everyone has that sort of personality but um i think it's killing it for this guy and now he gets people flying in from all over the world you know to come work just with him you know it's very, it can be very powerful if you crack that'd be it. Great.
1: <laughs> what might be, that'd be great. Not good at it yet.
0: Yeah. I think, I think, I think that's the hard thing about anything new like that. Okay. If you learn enough skills where you have an ongoing concern, uh, the business is going well to then jump into being a beginner again and like grope around in the darkness and not know exactly when it's going to click and when it's going to become very efficient. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough to find the time for that. Um, Another thing that could be good for you is, have you ever thought about like putting together a book or something like that?
1: Yes. In fact, I've had vendors approach this saying, it would be interesting to do collaborations where you style from our current collection and then put that together into like an annual lookbook or a style guide. Again, all interesting things, truly. Would love to do all of them. The challenge is purely staffing. When you own your own business, you wear all the hats, right? And you begin to give hats away little by little, and no one will care as much as you care about all the things. You just have to be okay with that, right? Um. So as I've staffed, I've had people who were My employees are great. They're very competent what they do, um, better than me in lots of ways in what they do. But it's figuring out what to what to let go of and what you need to keep. That has been a challenge in my space because I've looked for years to hire more stylists who I could hand off clients to. But I've not found someone yet who has the same consultative approach that wants where clients one on one who is also then a flight risk for you Train your competition.
0: And they just stand up their own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: And people who are very successful in what I do typically are very, very well paid by stores. They're, you know, bespoke salespeople making mid-six figures in a retail environment. So, because I can't afford that individual, right? uh, Finding someone who is good enough to put in front of, you know, my high-net-worth clients who isn't me, but that also won't compete with me has been a challenge. So, if I could find someone like that, train them, hand that off, I would love to get into more media creation, like books and just content in general. Um, It's figuring what can I hand off and then maintain the same level of quality having handed it off um, that I don't damage the brand in any way. 100%.
0: Yeah. Um, The book idea I had a little bit different was than a lookbook. Do you mind if I share a little bit more about what I was thinking? Go for it. I've seen an interesting strategy be where if you are very good at what you do, you've got a process. You kind of share it all. You don't hold anything back. You share it in a book. And so someone reads that and you would think, Oh, well they're going to read it and they're going to go do it all on their own or whatever. But the type of client that you're looking for would read it and be like, wow, this guy's very confident. Or they read a couple of chapters and then they hire you. So it's actually that it's a qualification mechanism. that really helps to separate, you know, um, and just and then you don't have to necessarily have like a team member or staff call, calling people or spending as many hours on that. So um it just seemed like a really good fit for you because it seems like you have a market where you could yeah, you could have one out of one out of five hundred people that might be interested in what you do could be a good fit to work with you or Maybe. something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: It's nice to use the validation on that. I we've in the office we have a Big board where we have lots of marketing ideas that we're working through to figure out how to enter this space. And one of them is just total transparency. Because we have the same idea that if we share everything, some clients will just go do it. And that's by them, they're not really clients.
0: And they're, they're never they're really going to be clients. Yeah. Right.
1: Um, a good client wants to know enough information to know that you are competent to hire you. Uh, as a validation tool, right? So, like for instance, we have an in-house matrix or we have like thousands of data points on brands and price points and because we should efficient right we have to shop efficiently so me wondering how different stores doesn't make sense so the, i should be able to put the client's needs to a matrix and get an output of what we need to go do and then making that tool public because again many of your readers and viewers can benefit from like that information our true clients are going to say, Oh, he's competent. I'll just hire him to do it. He clearly knows what he's doing. So it's on the table, but we've always thought about doing it in a like blog form or like a searchable form, and not necessarily a print form as a book, which would be fun.
0: You could do it. Well, you, that's something to be print. You could do like an ebook, and we can talk more offline about it. But um, there, is, there are these book funnels you can run. So you can basically run ads to them, and then people will purchase cool. the book. It's an ebook. And the unit economics are such where you can basically break even on that initial, you know, transaction. And then a percentage of those people will graduate and become paying clients. Um, anyway, just it's just a thing that I, I've been learning about in the last six months and I think could be a good fit for you. So I just wanted to share that.
1: Um, I love that, yeah, absolutely.
0: Nice. So for folks who are listening and maybe they haven't worked with an image consultant, what are some like low hanging fruit sort of tips that you might share with our audience about just presenting yourself and, and fashion?
1: Totally. So the freebie I love to give away is that, again, I'm I'm very much about being cognizant of what you're buying and why you're buying. So when you buy any physical good, you're essentially paying for three things. You're paying for the raw materials. You're paying for the labor to assemble. You're paying for the branding surcharge. And the order in which you pay for those things defines the position to your life. And fashion exists in pretty much two verticals. So you have Fashion driven goods and quality driven goods. So you have a brand like a Gucci, for example, their shoes, I think, is like 950 now. Lovely shoes, not worth 950 based on the two metrics of materials and labor. What you're paying for is the brand. Beautiful store build outs, lovely employee compensation programs and dental and vision and insurance. Love, lots of marketing, but you're paying for that chunk up front. And then you're paying for materials. and um, You're also paying to be part of the tribe of people who wear Gucci. And if that's valuable to you, then great, this is for you. On the other side, you have quality-driven brands who typically prioritize the best materials first, skilled artisans second. The branding piece actually is important to pay for. Some people want to tell you that the brand shouldn't matter well, if you're a busy individual, you really care about repeatability of purchase. So if you love this pair of shoes today, buying another one in two years is a good thing. I'd do all the research again to find that pair. And then also after purchase support. If the sole falls off, you do want another one for free today, right? Those things do matter. Um, so you can figure out where to shop based on those two metrics. Um, and then I like to give people some some some, some general ideas to help them understand how to dress it casually versus formally uh, because upscale casual kind of dominates today's style. So I walk clients through the idea of, imagine a tuxedo, men's tuxedo, which is typically a black or uh, midnight blue jacket, white shirt, shiny low paddles, typically satin or grosgrain. The thing that makes a black tuxedo dressier relative to a black suit is the shininess of the lapel, right? So the first thing to learn here is that luster can indicate formality. So if you take, uh, and then next is contrast. So a black suit next to a dark gray suit, both are very formal items, but both have on a white shirt underneath. Black to white is a higher contrast than gray to white. So relative the two items, the gray suit is, more casual than the black suit. So you get, you come together on the color wheel um, to analogous colorways. You know, if you had on a brown suit and a yellow shirt or a blue shirt, right? That's gonna be way more casual than a tuxedo. So you can navigate how to dress formally or casually based on how much contrast is in the colors of your outfit. And uh, the luster. So that shiny lapel, right? If you instead think of a jacket having like a very matte finish to it, like a like a jean jacket that's very, very casual. So a jean jacket is casual not because it's denim, but denim looks more casual because it has a visible weave and it's not high contrast relative to what you're wearing it with versus the shininess of the lapel.
0: It's more like matte almost, if you know that, that term.
1: It is, too. Yeah. And no one item is inherently formal or casual. An outfit is a conversation, one piece with another. So this black polo, a white dress trouser looks very formal. The same black polo with gray linen casual shorts, totally different look. So don't get pigeonholed and thinking, well, that's just a formal piece of my closet. I can't ever wear it. People to great effect will take high pieces, high meaning like things you think of as dressy and low pieces and blend them for a middle ground formality. And it allows you to have a lot more utility in your wardrobe. You don't need a bunch of stuff. Just take those few tips and mix and match high and lows and create upscale casual really
0: effectively. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. And so you mentioned there's three elements you said, uh, materials, labor, brand, from your perspective, if somebody is starting a fashion brand or they're starting their art business or creating art, what do you think is the most important thing today to grow that brand factor where people feel more comfortable paying a premium uh, for that that service, that experience in your eyes?
1: I don't know. I I'm I read a great Instagram comment recently, and it essentially said, you know putting a logo on a t-shirt isn't a brand. And I, I love that because you haven't done anything novel. You haven't really contributed to the conversation in any way. I mean, if it's a cool logo, that, that's great. Yes. And certainly the graphic designer who made that, that was art for sure. That's not really a brand in terms of, of clothing. Uh, so I'm not in brand creation. I, I, have, I have no idea how to make a great brand for saying that logos on clothing. If that's all you're doing. Isn't a great brand. <laughs> Supreme has been done.
0: Yeah, no, that I mean that's that's a that's a fair insight as well. So a brand, at minimum, we can say a brand is more than just a logo on a shirt. I think that's true. Um, you know, in B two B, I've often heard a of brand is basically the summation of your customer's perception of you. You know, if people are having success with you, if they're happy with the experience of interacting and being in relationship with you, your company then you have a strong, stronger brand. I think it's similar with consumer-facing things. It's, um, I think it has to do with narrative. I do think it has to do with story. And the more that narrative can be seeded in the minds of people before you talk to them one-on-one, right? We talked about earlier about if in a sales setting, you have to tell a lot of st- stuff and weave a story. Um, it can work, but it can feel more pushy. But if that story has been told in advance and they've been pre-framed by the time they come and talk to you, then you have, I think, a stronger brand uh, at play. Um, yeah. So any, any reaction to that? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I like the idea that brand is a summation of your customer's perspective of you. Um, I, I think that it's competent thing to say that we all have a personal brand, as maybe cheesy as that word is, as a buzzword. We certainly use that. Uh, I haven't phrased that before, but when I tell clients you present yourself in a certain way based on how you're that's your brand, right? That, that's the, the summation of your audience's Perceptive. perspective of you. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um.
0: So Gucci and, so, and companies like that have taken actions in advance of the, the person being in the yes. store to prime a certain perception in their mind. And it's like the more you can kind of create a positive perception. So that by the time they get to that consideration phase where they've got Gucci in one hand and Insert some other brand or the yeah. other. It's like that they get nudged in that direction, even though there's a price Different. differential. Perhaps and that
1: correlation happens in a wide variety of ways. That's that you know, print media, social media, then also you have you know, who's also wearing that brand. I talk Do about I that's called social,
0: social proof. Brand. You ever heard of that?
1: <laughs> not, that phrase, though.
0: No. Yeah, I social proof I talk about so much to my clients because that is actually probably, in my opinion, the biggest part of a brand. It's like not only is it the perceptions of the summation of the perceptions of your customers, it's that you've documented their perception and then you share that widely. And whether that customer is a celebrity and they have high status from that, or if they're just like a Jane or a Joe on the street, you know, and it's more of like a man on the street sort of story, um, that social proof, I think, is the primary driver, in my experience, of increased brand value today.
1: There's a, a book that was just published a few months ago that attempts to define culture in terms of social proof that's wonderful. The author is W. David Marks. Okay. The book of status and culture. Uh, Culture is hard to define for any sociologist, right? He does a bang-up job, but it's through this exact lens of uh, triangulation. Is this person high status? What are the markers of high status that I see on them? Brand being one of them and that lends credibility to social proof. If your customer was on the fence about buying something, maybe, I don't know, something behind
0: in my frame here. And they saw it here as well. One more nudge towards the buying trigger. And, you know, maybe we can say this for another episode, another time either. But I think it's so funny, like, because there are certain things that in a way, um, like the some of the brands that have the flashier logos and they put their name out there and the names on everything. That's almost like, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes it's kind of what, what, uh, Striving people or or new money people think is high end and wealthy, but then you have these old money people who they want to wear like no logos, like nothing shown, right? And so there's like a there's yeah. there's layers to this where the status games are always present, but they're different games people are playing. But um, uh, what's what's another way to say this? The other way to say it is it's like like you know, the 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 uh, most successful brands in Europe are these luxury brands. And so luxuries often wants people to make it seem like it's exclusive, but if it's if it's the most popular, it means that somehow it's both like felt to be exclusive in everyone's minds, but like a lot of people have it, and that's kind of like that interesting uh, dynamic at play.
1: <laughs> that uh, the, the word before is stealth wealth. Yeah, it's a it's a common word now. Shows like Succession have helped bring it to the forefront of the social consciousness. Um, and LVMH's uh, owner Bernard Arnault for minute there was the richest man in the world, um, utilizing, you know, this leverage of some of my brands are very popular and well-known, like Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, the LVMH. But they also own brands like Laura Piana, maker of the $3,000 t-shirt that many have never heard of, but is arguably, you know, much, much, much nicer, higher, higher strata.
0: But the people that are in those strata, they might be able to notice it from the, the make of it or the look of it and... It to and you're so you're kind of playing those games and showing off to that group of people. But yeah, anyway, it's it's so interesting. So um Joshua, thanks so much for chatting for a bit. This has been a lot of fun. Um if people want to What's learn more about you and what you're doing, where can they find out more about you online?
1: Uh yes, monogramstyling.com is our company. Uh it's also our social media handle. Hopefully it'll be nicer soon.
0: <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, thanks so much and I really appreciate it. And let's talk again soon it a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.